0: Um, we're going to be looking at the genealogy this evening, mm-hmm. and uh, genealogies are, are one of those things that you sort of either love or you hate. Uh, you know the incredible details that you find in there, so if you've heard anything on this passage, you'll probably know that uh, there's things like the fact that Methuselah died the year of the flood. I remember doing the maths uh, for that myself a few years ago, if you want to know why I did that, uh, have a chat with me afterwards. You find all sorts of interesting details, like Adam was born only a few years, uh, uh, Adam died, sorry, only a few years before Noah was born. And some find it fascinating. I've actually been looking into my own uh, genealogy this week, uh, just coincidentally, actually. I started doing it at the beginning of the week uh, because my mum's been in touch with my last living relative uh, on my dad's side. And um, did some, uh, you can get on websites now, you can find out a bit about your family history. And I discovered that my great, 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 great grandfather uh, was called Isidorus Goodfellow. Oh, what a name. That's brilliant, isn't it? Now, to be honest with you, I've done more research into this guy than all the other people I've found so far in my, uh, in my genealogy. But it's because the name sounds cool. That's basically why I'm, I'm looking into it. And this evening, we need to be careful as we look into our passage that we don't just look at what we find fascinating and interesting. But we should think about why it's actually there. I mean, we should expect some amazing details if this is true. We should expect it to hang together in ways like the fact that Methuselah dies the year of the flood. The fact that his name might mean judgment follows his death, but that's a bit uh, debated. But for all those little details and things, we mustn't miss the point of what this passage is really all about. We mustn't miss the, the wood for the trees or the message uh, for the minutiae. So, what is the overarching message of this passage? Well, it's just two things this evening. The first is the depressing reality, the depressing reality. What we see here is it's quite depressing, really, uh, as you read through uh, the list. Uh, You're sort of presented with a cycle all the way through that just repeats itself over and over again. I don't know if that came across to you as Judith was reading it out. Because first of all, they they live, don't they? That's that's what I say. They live a certain number of years. And they live a lot of years, don't they? Let's face it, this is much, much longer than we live. They live a long time. And you think, great, that's wonderful. But is it? Is it great to live such a long time like these men did? we found out, haven't we, as we've gone through Genesis, that these men are living in a cursed world. A world where nothing lasts, where nothing is permanent. Imagine Methuselah there living to 969 Imagine the number of loved ones that he must have watched die around him. Because sure, he lived very, very long, but people still get ill, people still have accidents. Um, Imagine the number of children that Methuselah had in 969 years. It's a lot of time to have children, isn't it? How many of them did did he bury? Did he have to bury his own children? He lived much, much longer than everybody else. And imagine the times in that sort of lifespan that you'd have to start all over again. When <clears throat> your house has been hit by a flood, when there's been an earthquake, when there's been a fire. How many times would you lose everything and have to just start all over again? And the other problem with this world is that it's full of other people. So we're already presented here with these, uh, these people here. But you can see that as it's going, it's getting more and more people. And you think, well, <clears throat> that sounds quite nice, except for Genesis Chapter 6, verse 5, just the next chapter, sums up what this world is like. So it's on the back of your sheets there. The Lord saw the, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'll read that last bit again. The thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's what man is like at this point. And the world is filling up with men. And women as well. Imagine what living in a world like that was like. As uh, Steve mentioned in a prior couple of weeks ago, in one sense, death is a mercy to them in a world that must have been quite horrific. Uh, so they, they lived a long time. Now, if you're interested, there are other scenarios, other, sorry, other um, accounts of the flood in other cultures that also have this idea of them living uh, for a long time. Uh, so the Sumerian account has them living for thousands of years. Uh, but they all have this idea of it was longer afterwards and shorter afterwards. People have wanted to sort of mess around with the numbers and try to make it sound like they, they don't live quite as long. Uh, my favourite one was sort of make, putting a decimal point in there. So Methuselah lives to 96.5. Um, unfortunately, it also means that things like um, Enoch has a child when he's 6.5. Um, <laughs> so it really doesn't work. Uh, but it does feel a little bit weird, doesn't it? Uh, and I really do think that it is talking about years. I think we're supposed to read this literally. Uh, I think the the reason that it's it's sensible to believe that is partly the word of God says it, which should sort of settle it. But also, if you think through the science that we know now, um, think about genetics. Uh, back then, if we started off with Adam and Eve, uh, who were made perfect, I think their, their genome, their DNA would have been uh, fine, wouldn't it? It would have been uh, no problems with it. But as generations continue, DNA degrades and errors come in and and goes on. What happens at the flood that's going to come in is is a bottleneck in the population. So you're going to end up with fewer people around uh, having to have children with each other. So all of us know, don't we, that if you have um, children with close relatives, they're more likely to have genetic abnormalities, don't they? Uh, That's why you're not supposed to really marry your cousins. Uh, and the royals that have done that sort of thing have ended up generally with a few problems uh, physically and, and mentally as well. They apparently killed off the pharaohs. That was one of the things. They kept marrying their sisters. Uh, and the genetic abnormalities caused all sorts of problems. Um, so, actually, think about our age. Well, nobody dies of old age, do they? Their heart gives up or their liver fails. But perhaps before this, this bottleneck, before the increase in the errors, actually, they live for a longer time. Uh, so I really do think this is talking about a, a much longer period. If you want to talk about that afterwards, um, do feel free to chat to me. So they live. And then the second thing we see that's sort of blatantly obvious is that they reproduce. They reproduce. They have children. And not just the ones that were given the names of. Each time it says, and they had other uh, children, other sons and daughters. So think about it. These people who are living a long time. There's no uh, menopause for a man. Is that men are able to have children right up until a very, very old age? And even for a woman, that could have been uh, much, much longer that they were fertile. So uh, I've never really typed this into Google before this week. But uh, did you know that women are born with uh, around 2 million eggs in their ovaries? 2 million when they're born. But they only have 450 periods in their life. So they use 450 of 2 million eggs. Now the eggs die off as they get older um, and all sorts of things happen. There's actually potential, even in women... Uh, to have a much longer length of fertility, to have much more children. Uh, Could you imagine having two million children? (laughs) Uh, I I think you wouldn't want the pain in childbirth, would you, that came in 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 the curse? But they could have had thousands of children in their lifetime that were just not told about about the other ones. So they're reproducing. But again, what have we seen? Well, man is sinful. Man is uh, rejecting God. So actually more people really equals more sin. More generations of people equal sin enduring longer. There's no end, and it's, it's getting bigger, really, is the picture that we've we've got here. So that's the second blatantly obvious thing. They um, I should have been putting these on, should They live, they reproduce. And then finally they die. They die. The punishment for Adam is the punishment for all. All of them die. Now we said before that was a blessing, but it's also the curse, isn't it? All achievement rendered meaningless in the face of death. There's a, a line from a Queen's song called Hammer to Fall, which I think sums it up quite nicely, which talks about building your muscles as your body decays. That's basically what they're doing. They're, they're just building their muscles while their bodies decay. There's no real end to it, uh, other than death, which renders it meaningless. So death is the hardest part of this cycle, isn't it? And we find it the hardest part in our life. Long life, reproduction, they were part of the original setting, weren't they? That God had given us. But death wasn't. Death is unnatural. It's an invader into the garden, into the world. And yet it comes to us all. And then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. That's the refrain we're supposed to hear over and over again. It's depressing. It doesn't end, it just keeps going on. And the enemy always gets his man. Even if they're 969 years old, they still die. So we're left here with a depressing cycle. And again, to quote a different band, the Verve summed this up um, about 20 years ago. They said, uh, it's a bittersweet symphony, this life. Trying to make ends meet, you're a slave to money, and then you die. That's how they summed up life. And this is the picture that it gives us here. And it matches with our world, even though our world seems very different and we don't have people living to such a long age, there's a real honesty to this account. You live and then you die. And if we don't come to terms with that mortality that we have, this passage is teaching us, then we'll never live rightly in our world. One day you will not be here. What are you going to do with the time that God has given you on this earth? It's one of the challenges of this passage. But that's not the end of the story though, is it? Praise the Lord. Because also, secondly, there's an unbelievable hope, an unbelievable hope. All we've done so far is really show the big pattern of the genealogy, what's going on in, in all the different cases. But there are a few exceptions that give us incredible hope in the face of depressing reality of death and decay. And the first one is Seth. God's plan continues. Seth, I'll read verses one to three again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What we get here to start with is a a really mini recap, isn't it? Do you notice that Genesis keeps recapping you and telling you what's happened? Uh, So we get the creation of man again all over in verse 1. But do you notice that it's incredibly positive? So what's really missing from, from verse Well, If you were going to write a sort of mini summary of where we've got up to, there's one big thing that they've missed out, isn't there? There's no fall. See that? So male and female created them, and then when Adam had lived 130 years, it doesn't list the fall. doesn't tell you that man has fallen. Actually, it's amazingly positive. All it reminds us of is that we're made in God's image, which is something very, very positive. And Adam then fathers a son in his image, in his likeness. Now, we've said that more people equals more sin. That's, that's the way we sort of thought about this. But in this context, if you read it that way, then actually this is something positive. It's saying that God made man in his image, made Adam in his image, and now Adam is making Seth in his image, fathering him. So really, it's the passing on of the image of God, if you like, down The generation. God's plan to see his image bearers across the world is still on. That was the original plan wasn't it in the garden. Now we know that that image is marred but this verse is showing us that that mission is still there and that that image is still there. God's plan for the world has not failed it carries on. Now it will require that image to be restored uh, to its former glory but there's still an image there. So we're reading here, really, as we read down this list, if you look at it that way, we're reading a list of image bearers. Sons of Adam, the son of God. We've seen that image passed down through the generations. Cain's line, on the other hand, instead of noting the image of God, it just notes the sin, doesn't it? With Lamech uh, killing people and uh, all sorts of different things like that. Here, it's incredibly positive. So that's positive enough, but just when you thought it couldn't get any better, along comes Enoch. Death is not the end. So Enoch is the seventh generation uh, from Adam. Now in the Bible, seven symbolises perfection or completion. So if we're going along that line, we should expect something special here. Because remember, God is directing history, not just the story. God is deciding what happens in the history. So he can pick a seventh generation and make something happen. Now you might be thinking this is pushing it a bit far with this sort of seven thing. Uh, You know, what what does it matter that he's the seventh generation? Well, it's not just me. So have a look on the back of your sheet. Jude chapter 1, 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, we're not going to go into the prophecy there, (laughs) because we could do that when we look at Jude sometime in the future. Um, But there's enough there to to see that actually he's making a big deal of the fact that he's seventh from Adam. There does seem to be something going on. And if you remember that when we looked at uh, Matthew's gospel and the genealogy there, Seven was made of a big deal uh, in their genealogy as well. So we know he's the seventh from Adam, but Enoch also were told, again breaking the pattern, that he walked with God. Now if you have a footnote at the bottom of your Bible, you'll probably see that the the Septuagint translates that as pleased God. And it's the same sort of idea. It's a close relationship with someone. So imagine like two friends walking side by side through life together. And again, it's not a push to think of it that way. Genesis 3, verse 8. We've already seen God walking, haven't we? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's something different with Enoch, isn't there? Rather than hiding from God, he walks with God. See, that is very different from Adam. So clearly the two communicated, and we know that as well because Enoch prophesied God is revealing truths to him. But there's that close relationship. He's walking with God. Now, he's not the only seven uh, in our um, uh, genealogies. I can get this right. Um, So this is our genealogy with Enoch, that number seven. Uh, When we did the other genealogy a couple of weeks ago, Lamech was the seventh in the line of Cain. Now, what it's doing with that, by giving us those two different sevens, is it's inviting us to compare them, if you like. So, if you remember Lamech, he's the polygamous, arrogant child killer who declared his own protection rather than depending on God for protection. And really, we said that he typifies the line of Cain. He's just what it's like. That's what they are like. Well, here, Enoch is there to typify the line of Seth. He walks with God. We're supposed to see this very, very positive. And the amazing thing with Enoch, of course, is that he doesn't die. God translates him to heaven, moves him to heaven. Now, again, you could argue, am I reading too much into that phrase? Is it just a a sort of nice way of saying that he died tragically young? We have all those different ways of talking about death, don't we? Uh, I know in France they say, les disparus, they've disappeared. Um, Or we say, he's gone. Can you just be saying that? Well, again, the Bible makes it clear that it's not. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, on the back of your sheets again. By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That's that phrase, walked with God. So the Bible explicitly teaches that he doesn't die. He escapes death. Now, think about the context that we've just been looking at. With the depressing cycle. Can you see the tremendous hope that this brings? Death is not the master. Death is not automatic. God can beat death. Not everybody has to face his judgment. This is an amazing picture really. That that death is not the end. Death is not going to win. God still has his plan on. He's still going to reverse the curse. Because not everybody dies. Enoch didn't die. And then finally, in uh, this set of three, we see Noah, there's hope of rest. Let's have a look again at verses uh, 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years old, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. We're told about Noah's name. Now, it's always significant in the Bible when they actually take the time to explain why he was given that name. Uh, I wish we had time to look at the other names because they're fascinating as well. But the passage doesn't want us really to look at those so much. It wants us to look at the name of Noah because it's telling us why he got that name. Noah means rest or comfort or relief. Uh, So we actually met that word this morning. Uh, So Joshua 21, verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. It's literally God, uh, the Lord God gave them Noah, or Noach, uh, on on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. It's the idea of rest. It was the goal of creation, if you remember, uh, right back at the beginning of Genesis. So there's something significant about his name. And we have also should note that it's Lamech who pronounces this. And he seems to know more than he could do by himself. You know, every, child, every parent loves their child, don't they? He thinks they're going to do something wonderful. But he seems to have this idea that he's going to do something amazing. And I don't think it's just the idea. as He talks about, you know, now we've got relief from the work and painful toil of our hands. I don't think it's the idea, right, I've got a son now. He can do all the hard work. We'll just put our feet up. There's something big about this, isn't there? This, this idea... Could this be the serpent crusher? Could this be the one to reverse the curse? Definitely seems to be speaking about the curse and reversing it, doesn't it? Well, here we're seeing the promise of the serpent crusher continues. How does Lamech know about the serpent crusher? Well, he could have heard it from Adam's lips. They overlap in time. Could it be Noah, who's the serpent crusher? Well, again... We're supposed to compare Lamech with someone else because uh, Lamech is the same as Lamech, isn't he? Uh, Lamech in Cain's line, Lamech in Seth's line. We're supposed to look at them together as well. So it's not just Lamech and uh, Enoch. We're supposed to look at Lamech and Lamech because there are enough names in the world, aren't there, uh, to come up with another one. Um, But the fact that they've got the same name sort of makes you think, well, what's Cain's Lamech like? What's Seth's Lamech like? Well, both their names mean lament. It's a great name to give your kid, isn't it? Uh, But um, with uh, Seth's Lamech, the idea of lament is a heartfelt lament, isn't it, about the curse. But Cain's Lamech is more lamentable, isn't he? He causes a lament. Cain's Lamech announces judgment on anyone who would take his life. Seth's Lamech announces hope for a cursed world. So the birth of Noah seems to say the promise is still on. There is still hope, not just a cheap death, but a complete renewal of creation, a reversal of the curse, an end to the futile toil brought about by Adam. And again, the numbers are significant. Um, so here's our, our list again. So the seventh are in, uh, in red to so get Ebra, who, who gives his name to the Hebrews. That's not a joke for Cockneys, you know, like, just don't pronounce the H's. That's really where they get their name from. But uh, as I've looked into it this week, tens can be significant as well. So uh, Noah is the tenth uh, from Adam, but then Abraham is the twentieth uh, as well. So it does seem to be, I don't, I don't understand it all entirely, but there's definitely something significant about the numbers that are going on uh, as well in this passage. So Noah is supposed to be sort of standout in the book of Genesis, and then Abraham will be the next one to really stand out uh, as we go through the book. But what are we to, to take from all this? Well, we oh, yeah. go. we've got an unbelievable hope fulfilled. An unbelievable hope fulfilled. All those three characters point us to a fulfilment in Christ. All three of them are not just there to give hope to the original readers, they're there to give us hope too as Christians. So think about Seth. We said that he was there, uh, God's plan continuing, the image of God going on. Wasn't Christ the image of God? told, aren't we, that he's the image of the invisible God. He's the real image of God, if you like, even greater than Seth, even greater than Adam. He's the one who truly bears God's image, his perfect character, his love, his grace, his moral perfection. (coughs) Excuse me. And God now is conforming us to his likeness. That's what we're told, aren't we? We're becoming more like Jesus. We're being made like his son. And as he does that, do you see how he is restoring the image of God in our broken world, in broken people? That's what God's doing. He's made his son, it is the image of God. and Now he's making us into the image of his son, just like uh, this line here. And it means that we have the same mission. It really is right back at the beginning. uh, To see the earth full of God's image. Not by having lots of kids, though that could be part of it. But now we fill the world with his image bearers as we see people join his kingdom. As we see ourselves and others conformed into his likeness. So the mission back in Genesis is still on, but it just takes a different shape with Christ. The creation mandate, as it's sometimes called, becomes evangelism and discipleship. Or as we term it in our statement, Purpose statement, mission, and ministry, helping others to grow in maturity. Now, it could involve having children, um, because you can still evangelise and disciple your children, can't you? There's a lovely line in a uh, John Piper book that said, Mar- Marriage exists to make children disciples of Jesus. So it's still there, there's still the same purpose, the mission is still on, and we are part of it. So it's talking about it here. What about Enoch? Well, Enoch was teaching us, wasn't it, the hope of eternal life. Well, Christ has done more than just avoid death, hasn't he? He conquered death. He died and came back. Death is no longer the end, so to speak. It was never the end, really. But Jesus offers us hope. Not of translation, not being lifted out of our situation and taken to heaven. But of resurrection. That's our hope, isn't it? That as we die will be resurrected with him unless we're around when he comes back, in which case we will be translated. But he offers that to all who believe in him. Just as Christ was raised to live forever in God's presence, so we will be raised bodily to live forever with God. Jesus really does even more, doesn't he? Death has lost its sting here. We still die, but in Christ we will live again. So Enoch begins even to point us to the truth of the resurrection. Both Jesus and ours as well. Even right here back at the beginning of Genesis. And then Noah. Well, he was the one who brings us... We uh, were well, talking about rest, wasn't it? Well, Christ is the one who brings us rest. Not from the toils of agricultural labour. Sorry, David. Uh, not uh, not yet, at least. But he brings true rest for our souls. Even in the midst of a busy day when we do have a lot of work to do. So Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Uh, again, it's on the back of your sheets. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who brings us the goal of creation? Christ does. He will ultimately do it for the whole of creation when he returns. But he is our rest. The book of Hebrews applies this actually to our salvation. In him we rest from our works. Hebrews 4 verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So actually, it's a reminder that we, we don't need to work for our salvation. Actually, it's a gift from Christ. It's not what we do, but who we trust. So he will bring total rest, will he, in the end. We will enjoy that total rest. And our rest now is when we enjoy a holiday, when we enjoy a nice snooze, when we enjoy a nap, when we enjoy... Just some relief. It's just a foretaste isn't it? It won't be inaction in the new creation. But it will be true rest for our souls. Away from the burdens of sin. That make us restless. Said isn't it that our souls are restless. Until they find their rest in him. And that's because he's the one that this genealogy is pointing to. It's not just an interesting name is he? Though there's lots to say about his name. He's not like Isidorus. He's the risen conquering Lord, the Christ, the wonderful Lord Jesus. And he gets the glory for all that we've been talking about this evening because he is the one who brings it to us.